Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Everybody to Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, Michael, if you don't know me, this is what's happening. We're <laughs> reading the Shirangama Sutra, and this is our fourth night on this sutra and our last night on this sutra. Um, so I'm going to start tonight by doing a little overview of the whole sutra, not the overview of the stuff we've covered, actually, an overview of what we haven't covered, meaning I'm going to do this really quick breakdown of what this whole sutra looks like. And then I'm going to jump right back into where we were at last week. Okay. So again, this is the Shurangama Sutra, a Mahayana Sutra. Uh, the, the word Shurangama means indestructible. Um, oh, very quickly, there's actually, uh, there's two sutras that go by this name Shurangama. One is called the Shurangama Samadhi Sutra, and one's called the Shurangama Sutra. Or this one's actually called the indestructible sutra, the Shurangama Sutra, spoken, spoken from the Ushnisha, from the, from the top knot, the head knot of the Buddha. The Shurangama Samadhi Sutra is a whole other sutra that's a, specifically about this meditative state called a Samadhi. The two sutras are very related, um, but they're just two very different sutras that happen to have the same name. This one that we've been reading is sort of a latecomer to the world of Buddhism. The version we've been reading is translated from Chinese. There's not an existing Sanskrit. And basically, more or less, scholars have determined that this is essentially a Chinese creation. I myself believe that there is some original nuggets that came from an Indian tradition and a Sanskrit text, but there's a way in which if you read this, especially as I have the last couple weeks that we've been going over it, I've been reading the original Chinese version, and there's a way in which once you really start to read the original Chinese, you recognize right away, oh, this is not a translation from Sanskrit. And somebody like myself who has read a lot of Chinese translations, you can recognize right away when they're translating from Sanskrit. Word structure gets weird. They're trying to match things. When you read this in Chinese, it's perfect four-character little poem. The whole thing is written in four-character phrases. The whole thing's a big poem. And there's so many things in here that are references to the Tao Te Ching, references to Confucius, all these little things that this is truly kind of a Chinese Mahayana Sutra. And it is for that reason that it's the foundation of, more or less, the foundation of Chinese Zen or Chan Buddhism. A lot of the Chan sayings or Zen sayings come out of this sutra. And this was an essential teaching sutra for Chinese Zen Buddhism. Okay. The first, we only spent our time on the first two chapters. or They're not even chapters, actually. They're sections. The first section was the long section about where your mind is, the exploration of whether the mind is in the body, outside the body, in between the body, does it arise, all of that. Then we explored the second part of this sutra, which is about the nature of seeing. This is all the comparisons about the blind man and the seeing man and the light in the room and all of that. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Tathagata Garbha. 
this. I'll explain more about this idea. The, uh, the Tathagata Garbha. After all of this is expounded, there's a very brief part, very brief, it's like basically a page, but it's Ananda's vow, and it's the culmination of everything, or the story that we've been uh, looking at. Ananda getting waylaid by the prostitute, then the Buddha coming with all the rays of light, the Buddha not, or Ananda not knowing where his mind is, Ananda not knowing about the nature of seeing, Ananda not understanding the Tathagata Garbha, which we'll talk about tonight, and so then he finally gets it all, and so he makes a vow basically to find his original mind ground. And that's language from the first three classes. So, and what this is, just to contextualize this in our sutra studies, in the sutra, Ananda represents the shravaka yana, the, vo the way of the voice hearers, what we would call the Theravada way, the more conservative, old-school style of Buddhism, Ananda represents that in this sutra. And his vow is that he says, Oh, I get what you Bodhisattva Mahayana people have been talking about. I'm in. I want to find my mind ground. I make a vow to find my mind ground. So this is kind of a conversion story of a so-called Thera, an elder, a Theravadin type Type Buddhist, a conversion experience to the Mahayana. Section five of this sutra is probably what you all want, and I'm not even going to talk about it, which are the instructions for practice. The actual, like, do some meditation, and there's instructions for actually doing, not guided meditations per se, but they're self-guided in the sense of, sit down, think about this. And there's, uh, there's a lot of different practices, but three kind of famous ones are something called the five turbidities or the five turbidations, five disturbances, um, the 25 sages, and these are 25 bodhisattvas or sages that they, they in the sutra, tell the Buddha and Ananda how they got enlightened. So it's 25 um, personal accounts of enlightenment. Uh, then there's a section on the 50 evil mind states, which is a very popular section for meditators because it, because it describes all of these different troubling mind states that you could experience during meditation and then techniques for overcoming those evil mind states. So very helpful advice. After the instructions for practice, there is a section with the famous Shurangama Mantra, which is this very long uh, spell, a mantra, an incantation. The problem with this mantra is that because this is only in Chinese and it's been translated from Chinese, the mantra is in Chinese, which makes it a little useless as far as a mantra goes. And so you would really have to get out your dictionaries and all the scholarly apparatus and start doing some wild, uh, it's called back translation, where you take other existing mantras that we know of in Sanskrit and Chinese. And we know like, oh, this Chinese character is how they would capture that sound. Oh, this Chinese character is how they'd capture that sound. And you would create a giant database of how they've previously translated mantras. And then you could take this Chinese mantra and try to reconstruct the original Sanskrit to capture its potency. 
Somebody has probably already done that, by the way. I just couldn't find the, I couldn't find anything but the Chinese version of the mantra. Again, it's very long. It's not just om gate gate, parugate parasam gate bodhisvaha. It's like a page long. So that's tricky. And then the last section of the sutra is on the bodhisattva stages or the bhumis. And this is a stage by stage, step by step, instru- not just instruction, but a description of the bodhisattva path from beginning up. Traditionally, there are 10 bodhisattva stages, but there's actually 57. And so this is actually all 57 stages of enlightenment. And that's the whole sutra, if you're interested. I have been reading from this, Charles Lu, Lu, uh, Lu Kuan Yu's. This is an older translation that I use because Charles Luke is kind of a scholar, and this has extensive footnotes uh, and just extensive notes. So it's, it's good for the scholar. It's good for, for that type of study. There's another version by a Chinese Buddhist Chan, Buddhist master named Xuan Hua. Xuan Hua is the, was, died in 95, maybe, 90s. He was the spirit, Xuan Hua was this master Xuan Hua, was the spiritual head of the city of 10,000 Buddhas up in Ukiah. In the 60s, late 60s, when Xuan Hua opened the, the meditation center, actually, you know what? He did it in San Francisco. Anyways, Xuan Hua gave a 90-day, three-month meditation retreat on this sutra in which for 90 days he expounded upon its meaning. And then the City of 10,000 Buddhas, that organization, printed the Shurangama Sutra in like 50 volumes. I don't even know how many volumes it is because it's not just the sutra. It's everything Master Xuanhua said about the sutra. If you get all 50 volumes, it becomes very difficult to find the sutra in there. And that's because I mentioned this last time. Even this version, there is, I don't know if you can really tell. Let me find a good page that might show it. So... Well, in this version, there is not only uh, headings of title, uh, headings of chapters that don't exist in the original. Somebody later said, oh, yeah, this section, this is about that. The Buddha never said that. And a lot of these are sometimes a little misleading. So that's tricky. Then you have the sutra. But then you have a Ming Dynasty master who inserted certain commentary on the sutra. And that's translated as well as if it's part of the sutra. And then there's all these footnotes, which are actually translations of another Chan master's notes on it. And then the the 50 version volume version is that master's commentary in the 1960s on the sutra, the divisions, the commentary, and the notes. You see what I'm saying? So... The Shurangama Sutra, if you wanted to just read the sutra, good luck. It's tricky to find just the sutra. Okay, so there you go. Two English versions. By the way, the, the Master Xuan Hua's has recently been republished, I think, by the, no, by the Buddhist Text Translation Society. Anyways, there's a new version of it where it's almost just the sutra, 
So those are the two versions you can read if you're super interested in this sutra. Okay, everybody ready? Four, the Tathagatagarbha, section three of this. I decided tonight I'm only going to read one section of this tonight. One idea. It's just one analogy tonight. That's all we're dealing with from the book. Otherwise, what we're going to do is a recap of a lot of the ideas, but I'm not straying from the sutra because this section three on this idea of the Tathagatagarbha, which don't worry, I'm going to get to it. That section on the Tathagatagarbha is broken down into talking about the five skandhas, a whole section on the five skandhas, the six sense bases, the 12 ayatana, which are the bases with their object, and the 18 realms, which are the objects, sense organ, and the consciousness that arises from their merger. So this section three is about the five skandhas, six sense bases, 12 ayatanas, and then the 18 realms. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We've talked about it the first night, we talked about it the second night, and we talked about it the third night. So this is like review, but again, the sutra even kicks into review mode. So it's great. So we're going to do that. Okay. Here's the problem with everything I've been doing with this sutra. It's the, the problem that happens all the time with Buddhism, right? Is that you have this tradition, philosophical, religious tradition that's so long, so old, that there's all these changes going on. And so what's going on is, is that in this section that we're going to talk about tonight, these five aggregates, the five skandhas, and then our six organs, our six sense organs, and the six sense objects, and the six consciousnesses. This is all Buddhism 101. This is, you know, whatever, Theravada Buddhism. This is the basics of Buddhism. It's what makes Buddhism Buddhism, everything. And so there's a way in which, for an audience that may or may not know about all of this, there's a tremendous amount of value in me just going through this. And like kind of, you know, explicating this and oh, it's like, oh, wow, oh, aggregates, I got it. The trick, though, is that this sutra, this is uh, what they call third turning of the Dharma wheel. This is some really advanced Buddhism. So what's actually going on with this Tathagatagarbha idea here is they're taking old school, original Buddhist ideas. And then they're actually doing a little like, whoop twist on them. And the twist, the little Tathagatagarbha twist, it might be meaninglessness, meaningless or insignificant if you don't understand the original Buddhist meaning. Do you know what I mean? Because this is all new to us. And so there's a way in which I have to teach all of this in order for me to like pull the rug out from underneath it. And it's kind of meaningless if I just pull the rug out from underneath something that which you don't fully get so I don't know if I'm going to get, uh, yeah, I'll get there, but this idea of the Tathagata Garbha. All right, Tathagata should be, we should have a sense of what that word means if you've been coming to Sutra Study Sunday, but Tathagata simply is just another name for the Buddha. Simply put, Buddha, Tathagata, interchangeable. 
They're not necessarily entirely interchangeable. Buddha means awakened, and Buddha is an awakened one, one who is awake. So there's that idea of enlightenment or liberation, which is of being awake. But Tathagata, which is usually translated as... Thus come one, or sometimes thus gone one. So Tathagata, not just, it's not a name like Joe or Bob, it's a title for an enlightened person. And Tathagata can be translated as thus come one, the, the one who has come thusly, or the one who has gone thusly. Kind of an aloha thing going on here, right? A little aloha, a little because aloha is like welcome and goodbye, right? So, tafagata. You know, I mean, I don't want to spend too long on this because there's a way in which, for the purposes of tonight, if you just understand that it means the Buddha, it's fine. But tafagata does have this really deep significance of. If someone, eh, no one, is totally detached from their self, they, they've achieved the goal that Buddha's talking about, and they're not actually clinging to this. They're actually not clinging at all, right? Well, that ego, egoless, selfless person, being, being, if Again, I'm, I'm going to rely on a lot of old Dharma talks I've given, so if you've heard them, this will help. But the idea is, is that that person who's fully enlightened that has no ego in that sense, and in that sense does not attach to the sense of past self, nor the sense of future self, the me that will be coming down the line that will achieve such and such or not, and the me from down the line that achieved such and such or not, the Buddha, the Tathagata, has no identification with that being past and future. So the Tathagata being the thus come one or the thus gone one is this idea of what, does, what would it be like to encounter someone who has no ego and you cannot relate them to the person you saw last week. Their pure presence. Pure presence. That's the idea of Tathagata. Pure presence. There's also a little mystical notion of Tathagata in the Mahayana tradition because the idea of Tathagata in terms of presence, when I'm reading the sutra and the words are in the air, the words of the Buddha are in the air and the Dharma wheels of our minds are turning, that's Tathagata. The Tathagata is that presence. That's a Mahayana twist on this idea, by the way. But Tathagata is... You know, that's the name for the Buddha. Is everybody okay with Tathagata? Mm -hmm. It's a really deep, profound idea about Buddha. Yeah? Then, this is the idea of the Garba of the Tathagata. Garba is a crazy Sanskrit word that we have no English word for, and it gets translated either as matrix or womb or treasury or storehouse. And the, these two, matrix and womb, 
are sort of the preferred ones. Treasury and Storehouse are actually translations of the Chinese character that is being used for Garba, which does mean like a, a, even a, a war treasure, like where you would put all your uh, weapons. Actually, if you look at the Chinese actual character, it's kind of a storehouse for weaponry. So the word storehouse or treasury is kind of a Chinese notion. The Sanskrit Garba, though, is more about a womb where a baby is gestated, right? Or a matrix, this mathematical matrix. Again, I don't want to spend too long on this, but the idea of the Garba, the idea of the Garba as womb is that um, the point of this section three is to talk about how the 18, the 18 realms and the 12 ayatanas and the six sense spaces and the five skandhas, those are the womb of Buddhahood, the womb of the matrix of Tathagata. This is the matrix out of which Buddhas are born, which means this is the matrix out of which Buddhas are born. So the very notion of the Tathagata Garbha, Garbha meaning womb, it's the birthplace of enlightened beings. And so this is the birthplace of enlightened beings. It's this really interesting Mahayana idea that samsara is like where Buddhas come to get born. And the idea that it's out of suffering, uh, out of the mud, that the lotus flower grows, that's the idea that's being kind of played with tonight. That it's our very sense organs and sense data and all of this that is the womb of Buddhahood. Even though, for the last three sessions, the Buddha's been telling us how all of this is deluded, ignorant nonsense. So you see what's about to happen, is that everything the Buddha just said that is totally deluded, uh, dualistic, uh, dust on the mirror of our minds, he's about to say, yeah, and that's, that's where we go to get enlightened. Isn't that great? How's that great? Well, so... That's the idea for tonight, that this is the womb of Buddhahood. And so tonight I just want to break down all of these realms and how it works a little bit. Okay, any questions so far? Ideas about where we've been, what I just said? Great. Okay. So I've changed my drawing here a little bit. And I've already kind of given you a, a preface that these are the five aggregates or five skandhas. So I'll go through those. I'll go through those. And then you should recognize these. Uh, I have my chart. These are the six sense bases, our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the whole body, I drew the hand, but it's the whole body, the whole skin suit, and the brain as a sixth sensory organ. And there are six sensory objects. Here I have drawn our famous bowl, but what I'm really referring to here is that the eyeballs sense form or shape. And I mentioned, I think, maybe last Sunday, the idea of imagining if you were just a giant eyeball and that's all you had to go on, all you would be able to use to make sense of this world is shape, light and shadow, like a, like a 
like a CCC TV, like a security camera. All you would be able to do is stare into a security camera and disambiguate shape, light, and shadow. That's what the eyes do. So here's the shape, right? Uh, here are our little sound. Here's some smells of flowers, salt particle, landing on that, a tactile object that the body could sense. And then finally, here's our brain. And the brain actually has a relationship with this thing in the middle here called a dharma or a thought formation. I'm going to get to the thought formation, but I want to spend a bit of time talking about rupa, form or shape. So, on my chart here, you'll notice that black is form or rupa, shape. And this is a very interesting idea that it kind of exists in the entire Indian Sanskrit tradition, but then Buddhism really, more or less because of Buddhism's worldview, uh, Buddhism sort of takes this idea of rupa and kind of really goes very far with it. And so rupa, form or shape, is the sensory object of our eyeballs, right? But what I want you to notice is that it is also one of the skandhas. Rupa, form or shape, usually refers to this. So, there's no self in Buddhism. Well, we can talk about that at length, but that should be common knowledge. What there is, instead of a singular ego self, is actually this, uh, this, this matrix here. So instead of a, a self or an ego, we are actually the momentary coalescence of these five things, beginning with rupa, form or shape. Now, what happens is, is that yes, rupa, form or shape, it kind of comes to mean matter. So the rupa comes to mean that which is made of the four elements. So it comes to mean, oh, uh, physical matter. And then what they are talking about in Buddhism is that this here, the, this ocular thing here, is made out of rupa. It's, it's made out of the same thing as this. Earth, fire, water, and air in varying degrees. And so... This contact, sparsha, the contact between the eyeball and its object, the form or the, or the shape, right? Well, it is a meeting of rupa and rupa. But here's the thing that I want. It's what I was tr I'm, I'm trying to capture tonight with this. Let's put everything that's rupa, I'm going to put in black, all right? Rupa, form, or shape, what the Indian tradition, and again, the Buddhist tradition, really it, it kind of latched onto, and if you start thinking about it, it's a very profound idea, which is that everything can be understood via shape and form, and that it's ultimately how our minds work in terms of making sense of this world, is that whether it's a banana, or whatever it is, or the lungs, and there's a shape to them. There's a form to them. 
perhaps before or beyond its name, everything has a, can be understood in terms of its form or shape, a visual form or shape, right? But here's the thing that I want you to think about. Let's think about our ears. And by the way, I'm jumping all around tonight. I'm not going to do this linear. I decided at some point not to do this linear. So let's take our ears, right? Ears come into sparsha, come into contact with sound. But the thing I want you to think about is, is that musical notes and sound waves, we even talk about wave formations. I say we as if I'm a radio engineer because I work in an uh, old radio station with radio engineers and they talk to me all day about wave formations. So this idea of a wave formation, a form. So what I want you to do tonight for tonight's sort of meditation is try to loosen up your grip on the notion of form and shape as being exclusively an I thing. And think of it that when you hear a certain note, it's that you are understanding its form or shape. And with sound, that's quite literal in that you're understanding its form and shape. Is that a big wave? Is it a tight little tiny wave? A form, though, right? So eyes sense form, but ears also sense form. You guys getting me on this? Like thinking about form, conforming, that formation, those ideas, right? The third one are little flowers there, of course. Little flower particles that land on the little palates in the nose, and you smell, right? Molecules landing on the tongue, leading to taste. Uh, tactility. And so before we talk about the brain and its relationship to its sense object, Another interesting thing, and this is sort of pertains to the Shurangama Sutra. I'm going to be reading this section later that's going to be talking about the order of these senses. And they are always eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. They're always in that order. And there is a hierarchy. And I want us to just take a moment to think about that hierarchy. Which is that? If somebody walked in the room, would you not see them first? In, fact, in, in any regard, whether they're walking way, oh look, blocks and blocks, would you not see them before you hear them? So there is this um, priority, priority to sight. So, oh, there he comes. Then next, wouldn't you be able to hear them? Then next, wouldn't you be able to smell them, but they would have to get closer? Then next, couldn't you taste them, but they would have to get even closer? And then ultimately touching them the closest, right? Now, everybody follow me on that one? That there's a priority there, right? You might touch before taste. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and in that, let's, let's play in, in there for a moment, right? So I keep mentioning this word, sparsha, contact. So all of these, this whole operation is based on the idea of a sense organ 
coming into contact with its sense object, right? When we think of contact, we may think of the, this one as the like contact, right? Because the idea is that if somebody's over there playing a guitar, I can hear them, I you know see them, all that, but I can't, I can't touch them. I can't have contact. Contact is this. So this is this is flesh, right? And it's sensitive flesh, right? Like so sensitive that I can feel that this is kind of smooth, right? Isn't this just a piece of flesh? Isn't it just a really sensitive piece of flesh? So sensitive, in fact, that not only could I feel if it's smooth with my tongue, I could feel if it's salty. I can't feel if it's salty with my hand. So yes, isn't that contact? So wait a minute. This is contact, right? Uh, this is definitely contact, because you've got to put it in your... I can't taste it from afar, right? But isn't smelling? Smelling's literally contact. Literally, because little flower particles, little fecal particles <laughs> come and land on those little palates, and there's contact. And those little palates in your nose, they're this like this. They're actually even more sensitive than the tongue. Up in your nose, you have two little tongues that are so sensitive that even a granule of anything up there could really change your whole chemistry. It's so sensitive. So this is contact too. Physical contact, right? Let's talk about this. Contact. Sound as contact. So I'm touching it. I'm puffing it. The little particles are coming off. I'm touching it, right? If that guy's over there playing the guitar and the wave is coming and my ear is ringing, right? Is there contact? There's a very interesting meditation in a Buddhist sutra about the relationship between a musical note and the instrument and whether they're separate or not. So very subtle, very subtle dharma there, right? Which is, and all of a sudden it starts to get like, wow, what's going on with hearing? Like what is actually going on with hearing? Well, according to our science, what's actually going on is that there's a, a vibrating uh, string and that vibration is causing a vibration that then gets your ear vibrating at the same frequency. And so there's a way in which the contact, there is contact between the two. It's very subtle and it's remote, but it makes you wonder about proximity, right? And contact in that way. And if you follow that one, if you follow that you're in contact with what you're hearing, then really meditate on the idea that you're in contact with what you're seeing. So then it also asks 
if we're in contact with the sound that's coming out of us if we're the instrument so exactly i do uh, if i ever lead meditations i use I talk about that in terms of the breath so mysterious the breath right is it yours or not is it inside you or outside you it's so mysterious when you really start to think about whether it is it you or not <laughs> uh, right uh, i mean it's some air out here so that's not me uh uh is it, you know, is it me? Is it not me? Is your breathing you or not you? So again, the idea though of, and this can get a little freaky for people. If, if you think of sight as contact, because all of a sudden it's like, it's like everything's sticking to my eyeballs. But if you were here for the last three sessions, that's what the Buddha's talking about, about dust on our eyes. All of this is sticking to us via contact. And even though you might think... Do you mean metaphorically sticking to us? I, I wasn't here for the last Oh, yeah. Um, corrupting us. Diluting our minds. And I will get back to some things that came up about yeah. that. But. So, yeah. So, in terms of these five, quote, external sense objects, I just want you to see that there is this initial operation of contact going on. It's an important part of the dependent origination story, that you see this relationship, that it's from the sense organs that we have contact with the world. And this is how the contact happens. Now, we have form in the shape of sound waves, molecular structures, uh, physical structures, olfactory structures, shape structures, and all of that, right? But again, these are all in black. These are all formations. The ear gets into the form of the wave. The nose gets into the form of the smell, right? The form of the taste, all of that. I conform to the thing to feel it. There's all of this conforming going on in terms of sensation. The, this is a sense base. And as a sense base, these things sort of stick to it a little bit, come into contact with it. And when the, or, or when the organ comes into contact with its object, there emerges this, vijnana. That's what this green triangle represents, is an emergent consciousness. Do I write? Whatever. Yeah, vijnana. Consciousness, actually it's a discriminative thought pattern. So, and the reason why consciousness is tricky is because when people hear the Buddhists talk about, oh, one of the skandhas is vijnana, they think of it as singular. They think of it as this like, oh, you mean my cognition? No. The eyeball itself, there emerges an awareness. Vijnana. Awareness, cognition, sort of. An awareness of what it's seeing. But it's a discriminative awareness. So I, I might have said this. I, I know I've said this in the past. I just don't know if I've said it recently. This word vijnana is actually the word jnana, which is knowledge. And the word vij is not unlike in the English word division. The vij of division Vij means to cut. And so this is cut knowledge. Vijnana is literally discriminated knowledge, cut knowledge. 
So there's pure knowledge, like, to, like the whole internet, and then there's Vijnana, one tiny little slice of the internet, one tiny little part of knowledge. And so the eyeball, being a sensory organ, comes into contact with its object. But our eyeballs, of course, discriminate. They don't discriminate um, politically in that sense, but they discriminate in that they it's like, oh, hey, there's a bunch of infrared, big red waves that my eyeball is like, I'm not having it. I, I, discri- I do not do big red waves. And then these tight little ultraviolet waves, I don't do ultraviolet either. I only do this bandwidth. So that's discrimination, right? So the, I'm only doing this bandwidth, boom. And this particular eye has all of its history. Like maybe I got a cataract, or maybe I got this, or maybe I got that eye disease, or I lost some rods along the way, or whatever it is. So my unique eye coming into contact with already a limited form. It's not the whole form. It's a discriminated form. And so from that emerges this awareness in the eyeball. It's an awareness of form but a discriminated form. The ears come into contact with sound. Again, I can't hear the real high-pitched dog whistles. I can't hear the whales. I can only hear the other humans, right? Right in there. So I've discriminated what I will hear. And then I also discriminate on all kinds of ways based on my ear formation and all of that. And then a hearing consciousness, a hearing awareness emerges in the ear. Same thing with the nose, same thing with the tongue. Same thing with tactility. There emerges in the body an awareness. There emerges in the tongue an awareness. There emerges in each of these organs an awareness of what it's perceiving. Yeah? These five vijnanas, and the very important thing about vijnana, the reason why it's in green, this is, this is very important part of this. Things in green are dependently originated. By that is, I mean that this eyeball having a consciousness is dependent upon there being a form. No form, no consciousness. Form, consciousness. It's an emergent property. Do you guys know what I mean by an emergent property? It only, it's like a magnetic field that only appears when the two are in proximity. You bring the two magnets together. Oh, look, the light bulb goes on, magnetic field. Pull them apart, the magnetic field disappears and the light bulb goes off. You know what I'm talking about? So they get close enough, it emerges. But what's the phrase emerging? An emergent, emergent property. In the eye, there emerges this consciousness, but it's because it's being stimulated. You take away the stimulation, you don't get no vision on that. Or if I were to take away my ears, no more vision on that. It's simple. This is, this is not like rocket science. It's actually kind of simple in that way. So eyeballs sensing its little discriminated forms, ears sensing their little discriminated sounds, smells, tastes, and tactility. Those five organs... In their visionomic, in their little visionomic properties, 
they develop, and this is, I draw jokingly, the little thought bubble. And in this consciousness of the eye, there emerges a thought of what it's seeing. That again, it's based on the fact that I'm, living, I'm leaving out that light, I'm leaving out that light, I'm leaving out all these other angles. I'm only going to take this angle, this band of width of light, and whatever problems I have in my eye, and then I'm going to then create this. This is a little D-dharma. A little thought formation of, a vision, of the form of a bowl. Or the sound of a bowl. Oh, yeah, that sounded tinny, brassy, sounded like a bowl to me. So then you get, yeah, it sounded like a bowl. You know, smell it, whatever, could taste it. But the idea is that each of these organs create these little dharmic notions of what it's seeing, and then send those five ideas and it creates a dharma, or a thought formation, an idea. You could translate dharma here as idea or concept. Our brains sense dharmas. Our brains sense dharmas, just like the eye senses form, and ears sense sound, brains sense dharmas. Little d. Little d dharma, idea or concept. And this is an amalgamated, an amalgamated concept based on faulty distorted vision, faulty distorted audio, faulty distorted all of these things to this like, it's a bowl maybe? It looks like a bowl, sounds like a bowl, must be a bowl. So our brains come into contact with dharmas. And, and this here, this is not just the visual experience of the bowl. This is all five and even all six because you are thinking about the bowl. So you're using your dharmic mind to rub up against the ideas being given to you by your five external sensory organs. Everybody follow all that. Those are the six organs, the six sense objects, and the six consciousnesses that arise when those six organs come into contact with those six objects. Yeah? So my eye, the bowl, the bowl, the idea of a bowl is an emergent property of my eye coming into contact with the bowl. Mm-hmm. It's also an emergent property of my ear coming in contact with the sound of bowl, etc. Those feed into somewhere to create the Dharma, or is it the, the Dharma is an emergent property of the brain coming into contact with all those other emergent properties? Um, so the way that I understand Buddhism, uh, Buddhism's understanding of the brain is that it is like a central processing unit that it binds together the information provided by these five and sort of stitches it into a singular notion. A dharma. A dharma. 
But all of these are dharmas. I mean, all ideas or concepts in this sense are dharmas. So just as the bowl, you know how the little bowl is a dharma, is an idea coming out of, yep. is an emergent property of the eye and coming into contact with the bowl? So what I can say on that is it's not that the eyeball has a relationship with the dharma. Right. It's that the eyeball, the vijnana, the right. kaksha vijnana, produces a dharma. Right. And sort of hands it to the brain. Like, but, what do you think? But then doesn't the, the, the vijnana of the brain produce the idea of the bull also? The dharma of I'm the getting bowl. there. There's, some, there's another layer here. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's... it's yeah. So if it... But again, please, please. so, my, so the, the idea of the bull that emerges from the contact of the eye with the bowl, the, the, the vijnana of the eye, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That idea of the bowl, let's say that's all I have, forget the hearing and all that. Yep. Where does that gets deposited in a star in the center of? Like, no. Where the, does that go? The, the star is that, that's my. Just the, yeah, I mean, if I if we were just going to use the bowl, yeah, then the idea would be that these five externals yeah. stitch it together, and it's kind of like that. But okay. that's just form. That's just this. So it's the idea of the sound of a bowl, okay. smell of a bowl, and then the brain reflects on this dharma. Yeah. See, the notion is, is that we think that we're, we're thinking about this, this bowl out in physical space when we're not. We're actually thinking about a mental bowl that's constructed by our sensory organs. That's the important part here. Okay. Everybody got all that? And then you're going to get to what arises. Yes. So, I kept mentioning that all of these organs are made of form. But not only that, all the external ones are forms waveforms, molecular forms, and that this is called, actually sometimes people translate little d dharma as thought formation. That's a great translation of it. Thought formation. It's a formation of the mind. If you're into synapses, yeah, maybe it's a configuration of synapses lit up. But the idea is it's a formation. This is a formation, and the brain, in the same way that I was trying to say that your ear conforms to the wave, Meaning that it has to get in that same wave, and then it's like, oh, that's what that is. That's what note that is, right? Well, the brain form conforms to that dharma. It's like in that formation, right? Okay, so rupa, yes, this is rupa. All the organs are rupa. Now let's talk about vidana. Vidana, usually translated as sensation. I like to translate it as reaction because... It's very important in Buddhism to know that when they talk about sensation, vidana is only negative, positive, or neutral. So vidana, translated as sensation, that could go a lot of, lot of directions. A sensation could be like a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart because my friend gave me something. That's not a sensation. These are negative, positive, and neutral reactions. I either don't like it and want it to go away, or I want it, I like it and I want more of it, or it's totally neutral and I have no opinion whatsoever. So the idea is is that we are these amalgamation of sensory organs made of form, and when sensory organs made of form come into contact with forms, 
they have negative, positive, or neutral reactions to that. That's all we are constantly doing is having negative or positive or neutral reactions to all this data all the time. Ah, um, well, let me go through these real quick. The third of five skandhas is something called samya, usually translated as perception. I like associative thought patterns. Also based on form, samya is very much a formation. And the thing that I use to describe samya a lot is something like this. So here is a situation. But I have been trained through all kinds of learning since I was born. I have been learned, I have been taught to disambiguate objects based on their characteristics. And so my mind looks at this and goes one, two, three, four, maybe five, six. It's like, oh, I see the bowl, I see the cushion, the microphone, the clock, and the table, right? Sanya is my mental formations that I've been taught. I have been taught to discriminate or disambiguate a situation to make sense of it in a certain way. And that's based on form, use, all kinds of things. But what samya is, is the idea that when I come across a situation, my mind instantly goes, got it. It's a clock and it's a microphone, it's a bowl and a cushion on a table. But that process of cutting it all up is a major discriminatory act of the mind. And it's a major habitual act of the mind that's been conditioned. And so the samya is this sort of um, conditioned way of thinking, and it has to do with the way you disambiguate objects. Now, what I'm getting around to is that, again, these five skandhas are what replace the notion of a self, a soul, essence, individuality. We are actually the momentary coalescence of these five aggregates. The momentary coalescence of physical form, looking like sensory organs, having all these sensations, and then I, I am this rupa. I am my negative and positive and neutral reactions. You don't like all the same things I like. You don't dislike all the same things I dislike. You aren't neutral about all of the same things I'm neutral about. I'm my negative and positive and neutral reactions. They're unique to me. They're what constitute my unique experience of this world. That's not like yours or yours. So I am this rupa, you're that rupa. I'm the things I like, don't like, and neutral about. I'm my way of separating this out. Because the idea is, is that you could go to a different country, different culture in which the things on the table you don't recognize and you couldn't so easily be like one, two, three, four, five because you don't have the samya to disambiguate them. You follow me on samya? I also talk, I've talked in the past about samya as uh, that advertisers love samya because what samya is, samya is the idea that in order for me to understand what this is, I actually am, am referring to this. And in fact, I'm referring to this. I'm referring a lot to this. 
because this is definitely informing what this is to me, right? Because if, we, if, if, if I took all of this away and I put out all the cereal and the milk and the spoons and then that, it would be totally different. But it is what it is because of its surrounding, right? So samya is the fact that we take in the whole situation in order to make sense of each individual thing. The reason why advertisers love this is because they know when you're watching the movie and they put the little Coca-Cola in the corner, they know you will see it because of samya. They know that's how our minds work. We take it all in, disambiguate and discard trash, but it's been, it's entered our mind. So samya is tricky. There is a lot of of thought that should be done on samya. Uh, by the way, just for those who want to know, the vijnana, jnana, knowledge. In fact, jnana, the Sanskrit, is where the Greeks get the word gnosis. This nyo is the same as this nya, and this Greek word gnosis is where we get knowledge from. So we actually get the word knowledge from jnana. It's the same palatal nya. Knowledge, jnana, right? This is the same, nya. This is knowledge. This is samnya. And sam is where we get the English word same from. It means the same thing. So this is samnya. Oh, it's, it's like the other thing. It's similar to the other thing. It's like, it's samnya. It's sort of like that. That's what's going on there. So you are your rupa. I'm my rupa. You're the things you like. I'm the things I like. I'm my way of dividing it. You are your way of dividing it. And then we get to the samskara. Conditioning, emotional response. Samskara is usually translated as volition. I'm not a fan of volition. But you should know it in case you come across it in other Buddhist texts. Samskara is uh, what I put, I like uh, emotional responses. The idea being that once I've had the contact by my visual sensations and my tactile and all of it, and once I've had the negative, positive, like, ooh, I like all that, yeah, that's nice. Then it's like, yeah, that's a bowl and a pillow and that's a that. So I've had contact, judgment, disambiguation, and now what I'm doing in terms of who I am is that samskara, my emotional responses, is that this is not the first bowl I've ever seen. I've seen lots of bowls, and they've made me feel all kinds of ways in the past. When I look at this bowl, I bring all those past bowls with me in order to make sense of this one, in order to judge it, in order to know if I want it, want it to go away from me, whatever it is. Is this dangerous? Is this dangerous? Well, I need to compare it to all the other bowls and remember if all the other bowls have hurt me or not. And this is where I use the example of if, if you, as a little child, if, if one of your parents said, hey, look, here's a bowl, whack! <laughs> the next time somebody said, hey, you would, might flinch. That's a samskara. Right? So, you know, samskara has a lot of uh, psychological stuff going on with it. Yes, there's trauma. 
all these ideas going on with it. But the idea is, is that when we see anything, we never see it fresh, new, brand new. Like, whoa, what is that thing? Wow. We're always filtering it through our past samskaras. So you are your past feelings about things, your past experiences. You're the buildup of those past experiences. Which come out of the way that you divided it up to begin with. Because if you divided this up differently, you would have different feelings about the things that you divided up. Those divisions are based on whether you like it or not or are neutral about it. And that arises from initial contact via the five senses. Yeah? When that happens, when form gets going, whoo, and starts liking stuff and not liking stuff, and starts disambiguating stuff, and keeps having recurring instances of coming up with this stuff over and over, that results in vijnana, the emergence of consciousness or discriminative thought patterns. That's what vijnana is. This vijnana arises from form, sensations, positive and negative. The eyeball itself has a samya. It's, it's the one deciding, oh, that, that, that begins there, that begins there, right? The eyeball itself has the buildup of samskaras and then ultimately the vijnana arising in the eye. Everybody follow how the five skandhas work? Now, part of this drawing are my bungee cords. So these are bungee cords. Everybody knows what a bungee cord is, right? And the idea is, is that these little bungee cords are bounded. These are the, what, in the Dharmachaka Pavatana Sutra, the Buddha's first teaching, he calls these the five aggregates of clinging because the idea is that the nature of these things is they love to just like cling. And so these bungee cords are sort of showing how these five elements are bungeed together. They're bungeed together, having this experience. So these five explain these 18, if that makes sense, right? Because these 18, the organs, the objects, and the consciousness that arise are form coming out of Vedana, based on Samya, through the channels of our past samskara, ultimately arising in Vijnana, right? Everybody doing good. Because what happens is, every time, every time the skandhas get together and separate out into the six organs, there emerges an ego that the Buddhists call the seventh consciousness or the manas vijnana. So this consciousness that you think is you, is a seventh consciousness that emerges. And remember, green means emergent. If you get rid of the bowl, you don't have any more consciousness. Or if there's a bowl, but no eyeball, you don't have a consciousness. So you need an object and an organ. No organ, no consciousness. No object, no consciousness. Right? So, this seventh consciousness, I wanted to draw this emergent. Remember, it's emergent. It doesn't exist. It, it's like emerging out of this proximity. 
And so this seventh consciousness that emerges, it's not real. It emerges, and this seventh consciousness is the one that decides that the bull's not part of it. The musical notes are, no, 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 you're, I'm in here. You're out there. The, the, that's out there. No, you're out there. You're out there. Okay, you can be in here. You, you can be inside. But the idea here is that the, this seventh consciousness, which is deciding this inside-outside thing, the seventh consciousness is the one that the Buddha was saying to Ananda, that's not your mind. In, in terms of Buddhist uh, psychology, it's the ego, our sense of self, the one that's reflecting on all of this. It's emerging. It looks in the mirror every day. It, it has a sense of self. But the, the classic, classic Buddhist teaching is to recognize that it's emergent, though. And so the idea here is you get rid of the bowl, you don't have any more consciousness. You get rid of the eyeball, you don't have any more consciousness. Great. Ear, no more sound consciousness, or sound, no more sound consciousness, right? Well, the idea is, is that when you die and there's no more brain and all of this, there's no more seventh consciousness. It's not being reincarnated. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't actually exist to begin with. It's just an emergent feeling that the skandhas have. <laughs> all right? Can, can you use it? Go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm done. I'm, I want, I'm, no, I'm, I'm struggling with the word emergent. Is there another way to explain it or another word? Because I don't, I, I, sort of, I think I get what you're saying. Well, no, let's resonate. Screw, screw emergent. Um, yeah, they co-arise. It's dependent co-origination. It's an I and an S. You, you need one to have the other. Yep, that's all we're talking about. All of this is dependently originated. It's too late. I was going to do the 12 link chain and tie this all together. But no, no, no. So, everybody good with this? This is what the, so now I'm going to try to tie it back to the Sharangama Sutra. The idea is, is that tonight, if you haven't noticed, I didn't put the mirror down here. Tonight, this, this is the mirror. Literally, in the sense that these, it's, it, was, it was the joke I said the other night about like, <laughs> why, the marker doesn't work. <laughs> oh, it does work. It's because it's dependent on the whiteboard. It, it can't, it won't work. The ink is literally dependent on, <laughs> on the whiteboard. So tonight, this, the whiteboard is the, the mirror mind, the ground upon which all phenomena arise, are allowed to be. Should I turn this flat to make it more sense? You know? Yeah. What's the term for that emergent one? Which, what do you mean? Oh, this is the um, Manas Vijnana. This sixth, the brain's sixth consciousness, so uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. This one is called the Mano Vijnana. This one is called the Manas. And uh, Mano, as far as I know, the Mano Vijnana. Mono is like in English, like if you got an LP, if you got a long playing record that's in mono, that's one channel, it's not stereo, it's mono. Well, mono vijnana means the, like that unifying, bringing it together mind. Manas, the manas vijnana, the seventh consciousness, which again is emergent. So don't get 
too hung up on it because it'll disappear like that. That's the manas vijnana. Any other questions before we go further? Yeah. Is human experience just being an antenna? No, no, no. Um, human experience is, so imagine, um, um, imagine that there you have an, uh, the VR virtual reality goggles and you got the virtual, which come with the headset and they even have these new fancy gloves you can put on so you can feel, hear, see things, right? Imagine that that technology, the virtual reality technology, just obviously keeps getting better and better and better. And a hundred, even less years from now, there's people that are entirely in the matrix. They're, they've got the goggles on. They're like in this, you know, thing. They're like, oh, you know. And the Bodhisattva warrior, myself, I go in to that video game they're playing. And I'm like, hey, you know this isn't real, right? You know this is some information that you're mistaking for real, but you're in a video game, right? And it would be kind of like, well, what do you mean? This is reality. I don't know any other reality than this reality, right? And in very similar way, where the Buddha, in the first, one of the first chapters where he was talking about how he's like, I don't want you to think that this is, isn't your mind. But this isn't your mind. Uh, does everybody remember that part? It would be exactly like if I went into the video game and I were saying to you, this isn't your, I mean, it's your mind, but this isn't your mind. Right? Because you're in the thing, right? Using your mind to have the experience. The problem is, though, is that you're deluded. You're ignorant. You think the video game is it. You think that's all there is to it. And you have no other reference. So when I keep telling you this is made up in your mind based on some data or information, you don't have anywhere to, to go to make sense of that, right? That's the idea. So what is the human experience? The human experience is that we've been born into a video game that where somebody forgot we were playing and we're deluded. We mistake it for real. We love it. It's fun or it's not, or whatever. But the idea is, is that we keep getting reborn in this video game world because of our deluded misunderstanding of what's happening. But it is in, we're in the video game. That's the Tathagata Garbha. The Tathagata Garbha, the video game of the, the matrix womb of the Buddha, is that it's in the video game that you can get out of the video game because that's where we are. We want to get out. That's the idea. Okay. So everybody kind of get that a little bit? That's what the Buddha was saying all throughout this idea is that because of two distorted views, one, that somewhere in there, there is a self. That's the first deluded view. That at the depth of this is an essential me. That's the first delusion that causes this constant revisit to the video game. And then the second inversion or deluded view is that these external objects are external objects. And, of course, the, the, the bowl is the same for you as it is for me. Why don't you like the bowl? Right? Well, maybe you have totally different vidana, samya, and samskara, and therefore vijnana towards it, right? 
we got another one more. So here is our emergent seventh consciousness. That again, the whole um, the whole Vijnana game, the whole nature of Vijnana is to discriminate Vijnana, right? So even this seventh Manas Vijnana is in the business of division of that. And what it's in the business of discriminating is that this isn't me. These aren't me. This isn't me. I'm going to put a giant wall and say, this is me and that's not me. Right? So now let's say there is this other amalgamation of one, two, three, four, five, six, and... Consciousness is arising, right, like that, uh, belted in, <laughs> belted in by five skandhas, and having its emergent seventh consciousness. So there's Noam, there's me, do one more here, so one, two, three, four, five, six, some emergent consciousnesses, six, Bound up by skandhas, <laughs> and a seventh consciousness emerging there. And of course, this seventh consciousness also thinks the flowers are outside of it. And this seventh consciousness thinks the flowers are outside of it. Well, yes, you guessed it. <laughs> this is the eighth consciousness. There is a way in which I could have just said the board is the eighth consciousness, kind of, but I actually didn't want to do that because there's a ninth and tenth consciousness. But this is what is called the eighth consciousness. Also a Vijnana. It's called the Alaya Vijnana. And it's also called the storehouse consciousness because the idea is, is that it's within this consciousness that the bowl is a dharma. This, that, that one. Not this little idea one. That one is an idea bowl in the eighth consciousness. You're an idea in the eighth consciousness. I'm an idea in the eighth consciousness. Subject, object, dualistic relationship is in the eighth consciousness. So the eighth consciousness is the consciousness in which all of this is discriminated phenomena, including me and you. I'll be this one, you be that one. And as long as I'm clinging to the self, I'll be over here in the corner clinging to myself. Right? But the only thing that's creating that is this emergent seventh sense, which is produced by the clinging itself. It's sort of this uh, tautological paradox, right? Everybody understand the eighth consciousness here? This grand, like, collective unconscious? No, but I never do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you won't. N neither will I. That's the very idea of it. Now, there's a lot. The reason why I said that I was tempted to say, oh, just the whiteboard is the eighth consciousness. But the whole time that the Shurangama Sutra has been talking about the mirror, the mind ground, the pure light of the true mind, 
they're not talking about the eighth consciousness. Because the eighth consciousness is still a vijnana. It's still a discriminatory thought thing, being. Whatever the grand one is, it's still discriminatory. So one last thing that I didn't even read the thing. Jeez Louise. Ananda. Thus Ananda and the assembly listened to the compassionate Buddha's unsurpassed sermon and gathas whose profound meanings were so enlightening and penetrating that their mental eyes were opened. They praised what they had never heard before. Ananda then brought his palms together, prostrated, and said, I have today listened to the Buddha's compassionate teaching, which revealed the pure, subtle, and permanent reality, the ground mind of self-nature. But I am still not clear about how to untie the six knots of consciousness, one after the other, and what you meant by when the six knots are finally undone, the one vanishes. Will you again take pity on this assembly in future generations and teach us in order to wash our defilements away? The Buddha, who was on his lion seat, adjusted his inner garments and outer robe and took a piece of beautiful cloth that he received from a Yamadeva. Then, in the presence of the assembly, he tied a knot in the cloth and showed it to Ananda, asking, What is this? Ananda and the others replied, it is a knot. The Buddha then tied another knot and asked, What is this? They all replied, This is also a knot. The Buddha tied four more knots, showing each to Ananda and asking, What is this? And they all replied that each was a knot. The Buddha said to Ananda, When I first tied this cloth, you called it a knot. There was only one piece of cloth, but you didn't but why did you call the second and the third ties? Also knots. Ananda replied, Well, honor one, although there is only one piece of cloth, if you tie it once, there will be a knot, and if you tie it a hundred times, there will be a hundred knots. But this cloth has only six knots, because you only tied it six times. Why do you agree in calling the first tie a knot and disagree to the second and third ones also being called knots? The Buddha said, Ananda, Originally, there was only one piece of cloth, but when I tied it six times, there were six knots. As you see it, the length of cloth was the same before, but is now different with its six knots. The first knot I tied was called the first one, and altogether I tied six of them. Do you think that the sixth one can be called the first knot? Ananda replied, no, world honor one. So long as there are six knots, the last one is the sixth and cannot be called the first. Even if I discuss this for the rest of my life, how can I number these six knots in the wrong direction? The Buddha said, It is so, Ananda. These six knots are different but come from one length of cloth, and you cannot reverse their order. It is the same with your six sense organs, which, though, they, though coming from the same source, are manifestly different. Ananda, Clearly you object to the six knots and prefer the one piece of cloth, but can you obtain it? Ananda replied, If these six knots remain, concepts of right and wrong will arise in great confusion. With such things as this knot is not that one, 
and that knot is not this one. Rule under one. If all the knots were untied, there would remain nothing with complete elimination of thisness and thatness. Then, in the absence of even one, how can there be six? The Buddha said, likewise, when the six knots are untied, the one also vanishes. It is because of confusion in your mad mind since the time without beginning that your intellect gives rise to illusions, the unceasing creation of which disturbs your seeing and causes it to perceive objects in the same way that troubled eyes see rings around light. Hence, in the clear and bright reality arise without any cause all worldly phenomena, such as mountains, rivers, the great earth, samsara and nirvana, which are all like dancing flowers created from confusion, troubled passion, and inverted thoughts. It's getting a little late, so I can't quite do it, but that's just another little taste of how all of this ties into practice in this sutra. One more thing. In this sutra, and even Buddhism 101, the practice is about guarding the sense doors, and I'm going to use the original Theravada prescription for this. Mahayana goes wilder, but in the original Theravada prescription, it was literally close your eyes so that there's no more. Close your ears so that there's no more. Close it. Close it. Close it. Eventually close it. In this sutra, the Buddha talks about returning everything to its origin. So let the bowl go back to the bowl. I mentioned this, that all of us seeing this here now is dependent upon me holding it up. Everybody ready? Oh, no more visual bowl, right? I just took it all away. So you, you, you don't get to have the visual impression anymore, right? <laughs> right? So the idea of dhyana in the Theravada tradition is actually to backtrack away from what's causing the senses disturbance until you eventually even still the mind from its dharmic activity. And then you reach a point where, you know, basically all of this is now gone because there's no more stimulation of the eye to be having the formations. There's no more the stimulation of the ear to be having the formations. And there's a section of the Shurangama where the Buddha says to Ananda that if you achieve that state where you bring it all back and you are able to, um, you know, release this dependency, right? The idea, as he says, is that at that point, even that would still not be the true mind I'm talking about. And that's mainly because it would still have this sense of not gnome, not Jenny. That's just a real quick explanation of what makes Buddhism different than a lot of other meditative traditions, is the idea that even if you arrive at that absolute still place of neither perception nor non-perception, there is still the karmic axis of, I made it to the state of neither perception nor non-perception. So there's still the dualistic. Even though you've been freed of all stimuli that would be dualistic, there's still that 
trace remnant of the axis, karmic axis. And it's not until tapping into the Alaya Vijnana, where Noam's mind, Jenny's mind, and my mind, it would be participating in all three or all minds. This is why Buddhas are omniscient, can read minds, all of that stuff, because they're not attached to the karmic axis. Questions, ideas, comments? Quick question. So this is like, will this be Jung's collective unconsciousness then? Is that, is he sort of like tapping into that? Or is it... You read enough about it, it sounds similar, <coughs> but I also have studied and know enough about Jung to know that Jung is not talking about the Alaya Vishnana. He's not talking about that in that way. He's sort of talking about, um, as far as I understand it, he's talking about the Samya and Samskara, of the eighth consciousness, does that make sense? Which which would be archetypes, right? Not not just my ideas, not just Norman Jenny's ideas, but these kind of pan human ideas of the collective Jung's collective unconscious. Jung seemed to be really interested in the samskara, which would be the archetypal formations of the eighth consciousness, or even the perceptive of the eighth consciousness. I don't know how much Jung was dealing in the Buddhist uh, eschatological enterprise, meaning the liberation process. He, had a, he was kind of Christian, so he kind of would probably want to end at the eighth consciousness. Whereas Buddhism wants you to recognize that even the eighth consciousness is dynamic, constantly in flux, and not you, all of that. I, I don't want to leave the Shurangama without saying one more thing. It was from last week. Last week I started with this really interesting part of the suture where the Buddha holds his hand up and then he holds his hand down and he says, hey Ananda, is my hand inverted or not? And Ananda's like, I, I don't know. And he's like, well, what do most people say? And Ananda's smart enough, he says, well, most people say that if your hand's pointing down, it's inverted. And he says, okay, so then what's correct and Ananda says, well, I don't know what correct is, but most people would say that if you put your finger up, that's correct. And, Anand, and the Buddha says that if you think that, you're deluded. You're the most pitiable, pitiable of people. You're worthy of pity if you think that this is inverted and this is correct. Now, last week when I said it, I, I made sure to say that the Buddha, that in Buddhism, whenever they talk about inverted, they're talking about wrong, deluded, ignorant view. And when they're talking about upright, they're talking about correct or true, which is rather dualistic. And so when the Buddha says, is, this is incorrect, and he's like, yeah, is that correct? Basically what he's saying is, is like up or down in conditional samsara world. And the Buddha's like, if... If you think up and down, correct and incorrect is achievable in this ridiculous samsaric video game, you are the most pitiable of people. I mean, it's, it's subtle, but the idea is, is that any dualism is playing in the realm of the conditional. The correct, like what the Buddha wanted Ananda to recognize about what true correct was, is that it's beyond up, down, sideways, left, right, anything that's conditional, relative. And again, this is what we talked about all the first three sessions about big, small, large, you know, all these ideas are relative, right? 
Okay. All right. Any any last questions, comments on the Shrangama? Because this is it. Closing the book. Yes, sir. So just to go back to the idea of like pulling the rag out of this system, this is like this is the rug. Like don't get attached. The rug was when I put it all in the big consciousness, in which even the flowers and even gnome, my idea of gnome experiencing the bowl or the flowers, putting all of that in a larger consciousness, and most importantly, a larger discriminating consciousness, that's what Theravada doesn't do. Theravada believes in external reality very much. The whole Theravada enterprise is about humans or sentient beings, human beings, caught in this weird relationship with physical objects that they like and don't like and misconstrue and misunderstand and get all wrapped up about. And it's about sort of straightening out that relationship. Then the third turning comes along and says, but guess what? <laughs> Even those external objects are actually mental formations. They're just ideas. Reminds me that he talked about the dust on the mirror, and I was thinking about it last week, right? They would do the mirror and give it up. I was thinking all week about it, and I was just remembering like the, the coin, the coin yen, that like the coin, the, the whole story that he was saying, all this like monk was like, every day there's dust coming right. in, and yep. our work is to clear the dust from that mirror. So I was like, yeah, that's right. That's where like this thing going on, but then no, there is no falling. Uh, like, that's the the whole point of those poems is the Theravada to Mahayana flip, which is that the Theravada believes there's the mind, believes there's the dust, and it's a long lifetime after lifetime process of clearing the kleshas and the dust away. It could take lifetimes, but you'll clear the mirror up and then you'll become a Buddha. Huinang, the enlightened, enlightened Chinese guy, goes to the mountain. He says exactly what you just said. Well, if I understand everything the Buddha just said, there's no mind, no dust, or anything. And he's in the eighth or the ninth of ten consciousness, right? But he's beyond that because yeah, I mean that's part of the idea. There are so many deeper levels to this. I part of me wishes I could have encapsulated all of this in the twelve link chain of causation because this magic and mystery of dependent origination, that everything is arising from this dependent origination between a cognition and some data, and then this emergence. Um, it's magic. It's, it's magic. It's what... It's a, it's a physics that needs to be understood, in a sense, because trying to put all of this in Western science and physics will always keep you from dependent origination. That's all, everybody says, oh, Michael has such a chip on his shoulder against science. I kind of do because it keeps us from this recognizing dependent origination. Western science is not founded on dependent origination. Western science is founded on objects interacting Newton newtonically with other objects and having physical results. The reality of this and the reality of this is not in question, per se. We always we want to go looking deeper, but the reality of these things is not in question in Western physics and science. Whereas the actual existence and reality of these things is under question. 
uh, recognizing that these are mentally created phenomena. And again, this is the difference between the Theravada, that Theravada believes in the reality of these things, and these things are a source of suffering. So get away! Right? The Mahayana says, no, this is a total mental formation, and if I go over here, there's a mental formation. I haven't gotten any further away from anything. That's the Mahayana idea. So the Mahayana idea is like, yeah, just... You don't need to go into a mountain. You don't need to even go to a zendo. We're constantly surrounded with practice in that sense. But again, I couldn't get all the way to the dependent origination tonight, so we stayed in this sort of phenomenal land. Phenomenal meaning sensory organs, sensory objects, all of that. But keep in mind this dependent origination, which means every individual thing, the nature of it, has no nature of itself you could call that emptiness but don't the problem with that is then you say that the bowl is empty and you've just reified the bowl by saying that the idea of emptiness is that there's no bowl okay oh yeah my pleasure I look forward to it and I look forward to next Sunday so I hope to see you there Thank you. Um.